0: Welcome to The Fader Interview. I'm Alex Robert Ross, Editorial Director of The Fader. There are few musical acts as intellectually curious as Liturgy. The philosophy-forward Bushwick band dropped like a bomb on the global black metal scene in the late aughts, forcing all of the genre's acolytes to choose sides. In 2009, the year their debut album, Renihilation, dropped, their founder, Ravenna Hunt Hendricks published an essay called Transcendental Black Metal which functioned as the group's manifesto. Establishing the form in opposition to traditional black metal or Hyperborean black metal as she dubbed it due to its Nordic origins and proposing it as a way to save the music from the hands of church arsonists and Nazis, she was already putting herself in the crosshairs of a definitionally hateful community. Nevertheless, More open-minded metalheads recognized the essay for what it was, a courageous, raw, fervently messy statement of intent, rather than dogma. The true revelation, though, was Liturgy's foundational sonic premise, replacing Hyperborean Black Metal's unmitigated, obliterating blast beat with the more dynamic burst beat, a living, pulsating rhythm made possible by the remarkable chops of drummer Greg Fox, the music spoke for itself. Fourteen years, five albums and several lineup changes later, Liturgy is preparing to drop the epic 80-minute double LP 93696, arguably their most ambitious work yet. It's also their most dynamic project to date, shifting between breathtaking orchestral passages and pummeling runs of extreme metal, in which Hunt Hendrix unleashes hair-raising screams expressing what she refers to as unbound ecstasy. The record's subject is nothing less than heaven itself. Its title is a numerological representation of what Hunt Hendrix sees as the ideal balance of Christian love and secular humanism, a heaven on earth she calls hylogen. It's governed by four laws sovereignty, hierarchy, emancipation and individuation each of which is embodied by its own fearsome angel on the album, splitting the full symphonic affair into four conceptual movements. These angels are less cherubim, more seraphim, winged, clawed beasts that would terrify you if you met them in person. But then, hylogen is not your grandmother's idea of heaven. Earlier this month, The Fader's Raphael Helfand sat down with Hunt Hendrix for a conversation about the trajectory of her career the triumphs and pitfalls of modern religion, and the enduring power of transcendental black metal.
1: So where where are you at now? Are you still in Brooklyn?
2: Yeah, I'm Bushwick. Yeah, I've I've lived here for 10 years, and our our rehearsal space is not... Not far away from my house,
1: but yeah, you spent a long time there, which is like probably part of the reason that people like kind of unfairly, unfairly labeled you a hipster around the time when people were really like hurling that word around. Uh, now that we're hopefully like past that point, do you have any thoughts on like Bushwick's like hipster heyday and like where the neighborhood is now in relation to that? Oh man,
2: yeah. I mean, the concept of a hipster, I feel like, is so archaic. Like it's almost like you know, like, a, like a boomer or something. Yeah, I mean, Bushwick's. Yeah, th- there was this time when there was like a rock scene. In Bushwick, I guess, and now, like a lot of the center of gravity of like youth culture has moved to like Chinatown or something. There's more like techno rave. There's like raves, I guess, going on. But but yeah, the idea of like the Brooklyn hipster or something—it's like I never identified with that in the first place, particularly. But I mean, I, I mean, I always cared a lot about making music in a kind of you know experimental like art. Punk spirit, you know that 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 is something very different from the ethos of metal and, and the metal scene. Um, so yeah, there's I mean, there's a lot of noise music. I mean, yeah, Brooklyn's a great place. There's a lot of a lot of noise, a lot of experimental music.
1: Liturgy was like, you know, like a uniquely polarizing project when you first started making waves, like you were called a visionary and a pioneer, but also like a poser and a tourist and a hipster and like someone who Jeff Tandy wanted to fight. Um, do you, do you look up back on that period of like, you know, being like a polarizing figure in metal, like fondly, or do you feel like it's, you're glad that you're sort of like, you know, in a later era of your career now?
2: Yeah. I don't identify with that very much. I'm 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 happy for that not to be how it is. I mean, also, I think being a, a, like a practicing Christian, there's just a lot that's easier now. Um, I, I think liturgy would have made more sense in some ways if it had started a couple of years ago. It was much more alien um, a long time ago. We kind of stopped playing for a couple of years and then sort of got, like came back, uh, you know, with H-A-Q-Q. In 2019, and it kind of just felt like the band started all over again.
1: In the same vein, like, I'm wondering to what extent you still feel the principles of transcendental black metal, like that you wrote about, like still re- represent the music that you make today.
2: The philosophy dimension of the band has developed in its own right. You know, more and more, I do the philosophy as an ongoing thing. You know, I make YouTube videos and uh, write Substack posts. I, I have this new kind of schedule for writing philosophy. It's like every like every, every 10 days, I sort of introduce a new concept on Substack. You know, it's more and more like theological as opposed to philosophical. Yeah, I think I was more interested in like materialism when I was younger, and now I'm a little more interested in idealism. In terms of trying to turn liturgy into a sort of an ecstatic experience of worship that is sort of hopeful and loving and affirmative that general idea of sort of using black metal as a medium for that that's still what it's all about it's all about just kind of having a kind of mass or whatever but a really kind of visceral one
1: having reread that essay right before this interview um it surprised me like how much of it still resonates like in the context of the new record. I think like maybe more than any of the past albums like even even the arc work, which I really love. Like this record feels like kind of like an a- it really feels like an act of like pure affirmation like both in, like the slow passages that we discussed that aren't necessarily metal band passages and like in the periods of like unbound ecstasy as you call it those like really pretty symphonic moments uh, on the album like square more, I think with like the layperson's concept of heaven than the extreme metal bits with this record you seem to be saying that like your heaven or the hylogen like has room for sort of both These modes, do you think that's right?
2: Yeah, there's. I mean, there's always that like Apollo and Dionysus. There's always the sort of celestial and the more terrestrial. I've I've been studying Russian Orthodox theology recently. Not to divert the conversation to be about theology, but there's a theologian named Bulgakov, who is a 20th century Russian Orthodox theologian. His theory is that there's a that the, the Trinity actually has a fourth person named Sophia, and she is basically like matter. She's basically like the earth. Uh, like, so the sacraments, like taking communion, is sort of making contact with her. Also just like sort of spreading love and God's love outside of the church, you know, in contexts like like music, but also just in the sort of the visceral divine, you know? And that's a theme that's like in lots of different religions. You know, there's a goddess named Vajrayogini, in uh tibetan buddhism who i uh, feel very devoted to as well even even like like seraphim in christianity these sort of like dragon angels fiery divine danger um is part of the divine
1: With all the different angels on this record, the angel of sovereignty and the angel of of all the four concepts that that you identify with, your heaven, are they each like their own entity, like their their own being? Or like, are are they more just kind of like representations of uh, the laws?
2: Hmm. It's kind of a good question. Are they concepts or personalities kind of? I mean, speaking of Russian Orthodox theology, there is a school of thought. And I first encountered this in a different Russian Orthodox theologian named Slavia that there are certain concepts that actually are personalities and maybe actually Plato's forms were approaching that as well. Anyway, yes, on, on the album, there are four angels that sort of structure it and they refer to the four laws that would govern the sort of heaven that the album imagines. So they'd be the equivalent of human rights or something, but for heaven, They're like freedom and equality, but these are sovereignty, hierarchy, emancipation, and individuation. And I, I have theories of what those represent. So they they are concepts, but there's some way in which I think that certain concepts are like alive and conscious. Like freedom and equality are maybe concepts that are alive and conscious in in, in a way. You know, those are no, one, no no one knows quite what freedom means. You know, and it's 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 very kind of nebulous, and it almost it almost seems to be a phase that like the world's soul is experiencing.
1: Yeah. But yeah, I want to get into like the laws a little bit, you don't need to unpack them fully. But like, hierarchy and emancipation and individuation, like in particular, seem like you know at face value, like somewhat at odds. What's your vision of like you know like emancipation and individuation, like existing under like a hierarchy or whatever of whatever kind in your in your heaven?
2: Yeah, yeah, they are a little bit at odds. They're in in a productive opposition. The final one is individuation, and you know, individuation is the right to create from your unique gift, you know, to sort of like devote your life to sort of like suffering in the name of a singular creative essence. And it's really important to me that that is something that everyone has, you know, and that like, you can imagine a society being designed to sort of make that possible. And I think that there's, there are many reasons for many of the problems in the world, but you know one of them is just people not having the chance to do that and then like creating other kinds of problems because they didn't get to. So individuation is kind of like the final one and it's the point. And then like emancipation is a sort of ever renewed sensitivity to the appearance of new subjectivities, you know, collectivities, you know, for example, queer culture or just, just, you know, feminism, like new rights appear for groups that, uh, that are singular in a certain way. And what all hierarchy means is it has to do more with logistics, really, you know, of sort of people being put in touch with the resources that they need, which is actually a logistical problem in a lot of ways, you know. Um, that's something that is sort of that should be a right.
1: And I guess since while we're at it, sovereignty. I mean, is, is that is that sovereignty in like the like the individual like human sense, or like sovereignty in like the you know the nation sense?
2: It's like less and less dependence on external sources of energy. So so there's actually like an energy like a, like an energy independence or the like clean energy aspect to that, getting as close to getting energy directly from the sun as possible, but also on on the personal level, it's kind of a spiritual principle, you know, of sort of not not being motivated by external false desires and being motivated instead by love, you know, or sort of intrinsic dignity. So society sort of tending in that direction, because it seems like the world is going to change a lot in the next five or 10 years. And so, like you know, I don't know what the world's going to look like, but that this would be something that, as long as society doesn't collapse, that you know, if it becomes more technologically sophisticated or whatever it is that happens, that this would be a sort of matrix of social justice.
1: When I listened to "Before I Knew the Truth," I kind of had like a an image in my head of like when the burst beats kind of hit and like it sort of builds up and gets like very intense. It sort of felt to me like there's like sort of an angel like sort of rising up and then just sort of like screaming at me. And, and there's a line in the song, like Hyligen's wings and claws, uh, that makes me think of like some of the more monstrous descriptions of angels that I've seen. Uh, like, Do you have any uh, favorite depictions of like angels in that way, from, you know, from art and
2: art history or what have you? Yeah, I, I mean, I mentioned Vajrayagini Who is not a Christian angel or any kind of angel, but is a a Buddhist deity who I've been kind of interested in in terms of that like fierce divine energy. I think about her a lot. I think about um, it's not fierce as much as compassionate. There's a particular apparition of the Virgin Mary called the Lady of All Nations. And it, it was like an apparition in Amsterdam during World War II where she kind of like appeared to this like woman in Amsterdam and claimed to be transcending the Christian church a little bit. Like she referred to herself as the woman who used to be called Mary. That that kind of became a phenomenon in Amsterdam. She's not one of the better known. Like It was within the context of Catholicism. But there's a certain violence to that. Uh, even though her, her message was love and healing, she was kind of like taking over the role of Christ in a feminine form and uh, expanding beyond the boundaries of like the church in a kind of confrontational way, I feel like that's a little bit violent. It's good for the love to be in there too.
1: When people think of like metal and, you know, Christianity, I think like it's more common to think of a, of like, you know, a more of a black metal idea of hell, like, you know, fire and brimstone preachers and, and whatnot. As a practicing Christian, like where do you land on like the old school vision of
2: hell? I don't think I believe in hell. I mean, hell, the concept of hell was nowhere in early Christianity. Jesus didn't talk about it. Even the early ecumenical councils, once Christianity became an imperial religion, didn't talk about hell. You, you don't get hell until, like, early modern Catholicism, which is when Christianity goes wrong, you know, and, and becomes, like, oppressive. Most Christianity as practiced today I is, that's hell, or that's, I mean, like, like, I think a lot of Christianity is, like, satanic. But I think that the death and resurrection of Christ is a very important event, I mean his message first of all survives in figures like post-structuralist philosophers like anarcho-communist philosophers or whatever. More and more I'm practicing Eastern Orthodox Christianity, which is much more, I feel stupid saying liturgical, but but it is like it has much more it has a much more musical liturgy. Um, and it's like the spaces are all decorated gold and the congregations are mostly pretty conservative, but there's I think there, there's a way of approaching it that makes sense to me. I mean, in short, I don't believe in hell. I, I I think that I think that all all shall be saved ultimately.
1: I'm not. I, I know nothing about like Christian numerology. So nine three six nine six. Could you like explain a little bit like where that number comes from and like what it signifies to you?
2: Yeah, it's not so significant. I mean, I almost wish I named the album something else. Maybe there's still time to change it. Before, before it comes out. I always want to do last minute changes after it's too late. I'd I like to change the cover too. I, I I hate the cover. I would probably actually change it to what we called the EP, uh, As the Blood of God Bursts the Veins of Time. Anyway, to answer your question, the, the numerology is actually from Thelema. It's not from Christianity. 9.3 is what current 93 is named after. It's it's the Aeon of Horus. And 6.9.6 is the number of the Eon of Ma'at, which is an age, like Aleister Crowley invented Thelema, and he proclaimed that there was a new religion of the individual that was appropriate to this particular Eon that was like a spiritual vibration. And then this woman named Nima had a vision in the 70s or 80s that like that Eon was done, or that that the next eon was also happening now, and it was pulling us towards it. The the ethics that were appropriate to it are closer to Christianity, and it was because Aleister Crowley is kind of is actually kind of evil. Um, but I I connect with him, but you know he's he's so tied up with the history of metal and counterculture and everything. You know, like like the sixties and Black Sabbath and all that, and David Bowie. Like these are all this is this is Aleister Crowley's church. You know, is is rock music, and then the six nine six is the kind of return of christian love to a society that has sort of differentiated itself so that its individuals are strong enough to not be cowed by christian morality and sort of um, forced into submission and hypocrisy and all all the bad things about normal christianity so like 9696 is kind it's kind of like a combination of christianity and thelema that kind of connects back to the um, concepts we were discussing um, about the the laws that govern heaven, where people have, have autonomy and are a little bit fierce and anarchic, but are loving and disciplined at the same time.
1: The title track, which, you know, as as the title track and like, the longest song on the album, you can gravitate toward it as a centerpiece. I mean, it's like the longest, but it's also like, I think the most, in some ways, like the most successful because it's got like the steadiest rhythm, I think throughout. And it's like, feel like the most moshable, most danceable. What made you decide to like have like sort of that, you know, natural centerpiece of the record be like the one that had that steady rhythm behind
2: it? It was a tough choice. It, it you know, in a way it's a centerpiece, but in a way, having it on the record at all was a little bit of an afterthought it kind of stands on its own as well. And the record would still be a quite long epic record without it. Uh, we chose to put it on because c- like the next track is also a 15 minute, you know, it was sort of like, oh, we have these two 15 minute closers, like which one should go on? And then it was like, well, let's just do both, you know, and have two 15 minute closers. And that's just how epic this album will be. And that that kind of seemed like the craziest thing to do. And so, so that's what we went with. But, but also by that time, I had started mapping the songs onto the concepts and so we sort of needed a third, a third section. The, the idea of the record being about heaven was always kind of in there, but connecting it to the four concepts or the four laws specifically, that sort of arose fairly late in the game. And that's usually how these things go. Like I kind of, when I write a record, I have the sketch of the entire record exists before the details of any one song or the lyrics and, and, then, and then it kind of just like start filling things in and things kind of morph around that and that's kind of why so much there's a lot of material shared between the songs which I really enjoy like taking a section from one song and then t- kind of realizing it in a different way and putting it in a different song I kind of like it being a little symphony basically.
1: Were you listening to a lot of maybe like romantic symphony like while while you were making this this Record,
2: yeah, maybe I'm trying to think of what I was listening to. It, it's definitely influenced by that, and I have listened to a lot of that. Yeah, I mean, I think the record sounds a lot like Madame Butterfly for some reason. It's a Puccini opera. I don't know why it's not like a favorite, it is, it's It's a great opera, but it's not like my favorite opera by any means. But yeah, I mean, I, I mean, you know, I studied classical music when I was like 20 or so, like I was considering becoming a composer, and I was you know trained in all that, and, and really. I really like the structure of romantic classical music, Brahms especially um, and uh, Dvorak. like there's a certain kind of ro- romantic where like there's clear formal structure where the yeah, you kind of lay out some themes and you mix them up and and then you kind of have a crescendo and then it all comes back and uh, people sort of take it for granted because it's you you hear it and in movies is film scores but the, the structure of 19th century classical music is really really dynamic and i was always interested in combining metal with classical music in a non cringe way someone else who interviewed me coined this term cuz like symphonic metal is a kind of metal you know and that's like not what liturgy is like at all like i don't i don't li- i don't like that kind of music at all i think it's it's just not for me he was like oh it's metallic it's a metallic symphony and and I think that's um, that's kind of what this record is like. It it it's, it has the form of a symphony, and it's executed by a metal band.
1: Going back to your uh transcendental black metal essay, I always like the description of like transcendental black metal as like both penultimate and finite. And I'm wondering, like, do you think of, of heaven as a finite and or penultimate space? Like because that would seem to go against the orthodoxy.
2: So yeah, the the idea of penultimacy, it's not something I think about that much any longer, but it's opposed to purity, right? There's like purity versus penultimacy, and purity is hyperborean and penultimacy is transcendental and that the ethic there because see like I think that the tendency within metal that I was designating as hyperborean black metal is similar in a lot of ways to a tendency in mainstream Christianity um and in just kind of general like right-wing culture of kind of maybe a kind of a fantasy a fantasy of purity you know like a fantasy of goodness that is actually a way of then casting judgment and like you know, like hypocritically being hateful. I mean, I mean, with metal it's funny because it's actually overtly hateful, but there's this idea that somehow that's better, but it's like maybe it's actually just hateful. And like, so the penultimacy is an attitude towards nothingness or the the void, which is not a pure nihilism. It's not a bleakness or a, a fantasy of perfection. It's that, it's that sense that like nothing completely makes sense and nothing is completely finished. You know, you're kind of on this journey and th- there's no point in casting judgment yet. And, and like, you just don't know how things are going to go. You know, and, and that's true with world history. That's true in relationships. You know, it's like, if you have an idea of who your enemies are, like, like those ideas are very limiting. And there's this way that you can wake up to just the kind of sheer infinity of possibility that there is in any moment and the way that like it's also fleeting you know and so and so so that's the penultimacy and I have always enjoyed that experience when I have it um which is not that often I mean I I kind of kind of get in my head about things like I'm I'm very hypocritical you know or whatever but I like that experience and I feel like music does have like really kind of overwhelming music has the capacity to sort of generate that for an audience um or for a band playing the music. So I so I enjoy doing it too. Yeah. So it's cosmic penultimacy as affirmation.
1: Right. And then also there's also like the the finite part of all that. I mean, having just reread it, like it's kind of like more about like finite things like being more special as opposed to like the infinite which is cheap. But in terms of heaven, which is like thought of as infinity, like where does that where does that fit in there?
2: Yeah. Well I think finite uh includes being special, as you were saying, but also the responsibility of taking the next step and that being work possibly. It's a form of spirituality where there's a kind of hand waving about the infinite, you know, like, oh, it's also cosmic or whatever. you know, finitude really places the existential burden on you to like keep going and to keep having your dignity and having your respect for others and and having hope. How that relates to heaven is that I think people, often think of heaven as like a place where all problems are just solved or it's almost like, oh, wouldn't it be boring to be in heaven? Like, you know, cause everything's just fine. And you're like on a cloud and you have like a harp or whatever that like by definition can't be heaven. I, I think that a real heaven in the Christian tradition, most theologians think that we'll have our bodies in heaven. So that's one thing. It's not dematerialized. It's corporeal. And we're also experiencing time in something like the way we experience time already as 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 duration so the finitude comes in like still having the responsibility just having responsibilities having having problems having suffering in the mix and then the thing about heaven as opposed to our current reality is that that suffering does not go unredeemed so most of the suffering in our current time is sort of senseless And unfair, and those who suffer just kind of keep suffering and don't get a chance, and that's it, you know. And like some people have the opportunity to really transfigure through suffering. You sort of have to have privilege to get to do that in some ways, to a certain degree at least, anyway. But so heaven would be a place where suffering is in, yeah, suffering is in the name of something that you really care about, and then you learn and transform by means of going through that that process, and that that's kind of like. The fabric of everything in, in that context. And so and so that's the finitude, the kind of taking taking the next step in that sense. And like finite, not not in terms of like less than infinite, but like in terms of like with finitude, you have to do one, then the next, then the next, then the next. And it's it's not all it's not all there at the same time.
1: The space between like the penultimate and like the ultimate finite. Is that like sort of just like one of those like paradoxes like where like faith comes in or the missing link to between those two is sort of just like faith?
2: it's interesting to like talk to you know, it's like you you have an album cycle and so you, you talk to people who like know liturgy's history and like it always comes up like oh, you you were so controversial. like everyone was so mad and what about the manifesto and like all that stuff. and like it's fascinating to me that that text that I wrote is so so central to the band's identity, you know I mean, and i'm I'm not complaining about that. I think I like it. but like you know, plenty of musicians write stuff, but it's not like the first thing that, Like like Ian Svavonius or something, or like Tony Conrad, or like like people are just writing stuff. They have ideas. Even even John Cage, like, and it's it's interesting. It's like liturgy is like that transcendental black metal manifesto band. I haven't looked at the text in a while. I was in college as I was like I was reading all this Nietzsche and all this Deleuze and listening to black metal, and I was like very very unstable, very unhappy, and really. Uh, You know, what wasn't in a metal scene at all, but, like, just, you know, connected. Like, I really connected with black metal because of the depth of the depravity. You know, I was like that. I was was that depressed. And, like, I really needed this and needed to combine these things in order to, like, survive, you know, at the time. That that was kind of weird because, like, the text was so authentic. And the whole project was very original. In certain contexts, people really saw how original it was. But then then people just got so mad at me. And it was, like, I was very vulnerable and like, I was... Painful. I don't know why I'm talking about this, but yeah.
1: Obviously, the reason people go back to it so much is because it was like such a like a singular like start for a band, especially like within within metal. I know there's like a lot of like academia and metal. I think especially maybe more so now. I think like most people. Back then, you know, like in terms of like reading about metal, like you go, you'd read in like Maximum Rock and Roll and stuff and there wouldn't be like academic treatises on metal. And I think obviously that's probably somewhat like what some of the reaction
2: was in terms of the people, like people who just like thought like that's like not what metal is at all. Yeah, I mean, yes and no, though, because like, I mean, you say academic treatise, like the reason I liked black metal and the reason I still do, I mean, in a way I don't really identify as, you know, black metal or whatever, I mean, no, but no, one, but no one in black metal does, so. There you go. Um, lots of like uh, your band having like a, man, a spiritual manifesto is not strange at all in black metal. Like all, like all of the early Norwegian bands, they had their they had their little statements that were like you know wild and sort of mysterious, you know, and like that's like that that's what that text is too. So it's really actually part of the form. Granted, mine you know had more of a critical theory element to it. I guess that's what I mean, yeah.
1: Whereas those were like sort of like people people could read those and be like, "Whoa, like that's hardcore." Whereas this was like more of a you know a critical theory.
2: Well, I mean, sort of. I mean, it, it was definitely to some degree puncturing the you know, fantasy of the kind of uh, you know religious murkiness of metal. But it's not like an essay. It's like a college paper. You know, it's like it's like mysterious. It's poetic. It's like it's 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 like very fervent and and religious and you know whatever it's not it's not like a grade A paper or something like so it's, so it's not academic in that sense. I think it's interesting that like in a lot of
1: of metal there are like these like extremely like dense lyrics that you know sometimes relate to theory, sometimes you know etc. On this album and like on other metals like there's no way of like hearing. Everything uh, that's being said, you know, without reading along. For you, someone who like, you know, where like the music sort of like stems from theory and like stems from philosophy, like, what what draws you to like this form as like a form of expression of, you know, when when there's so many dense ideas involved.
2: You know, in terms of why why the vocal style, the screaming vocals, I, I resisted for a while. You know, I tried to stop doing them for one album it wouldn't be a choice that I would just sit down and make to, to scream in that way. But it just seems to work. Like, it, it just seems like what I'm supposed to do. I really find so much emotional satisfaction from screaming in that way. And it just kind of punctuates the intensity of the music. And, you know, I really miss it if if, if I'm not doing it. And um, there's nothing to convey like, significance and intensity, like some lady just like shrieking or whatever, you know, and like, you're correct that then. It, fails to convey the sort of, you know, semantic content of the lyrics, I, I guess I would just say that that's what my, uh, my YouTube videos are for. Like, basically you can find out about, like you could just have theory be theory and have that be sort of adjacent to the music and then have them sort of point to one another. And, you know, I'm I'm, I'm doing more and more sculpture as well. So I've always wanted to sort of, have, have work exist in these different contexts, you know, in the art world and music industry and academia and kind of be alien in each of them, but then sort of have them you know, point to one another or like draw people from one scene into another. And, um, and, and that's, and that's a great thing about bit living in this era, as opposed to seven or eight years ago is that it's very, it's very easy to have a kind of multimedia multi-scene uh, existence.
1: I like the idea that like, you know, you weren't necessarily trying to make like you weren't like trying to scream necessarily, but it just sort of like comes out that way. And like the way that you describe maybe like the the ethos of this album is like unbound ecstasy. Do you think that there's like an element of that, of like unbound, you know, expression of any kind that like really can't or like shouldn't be explained in words?
2: Yeah, sure. Yeah. I mean, this is one of of the methodological axioms of my philosophical worldview is that music, drama and philosophy are three co-equal modes of access to the divine. One isn't clearer or better than the other. and so so like you don't need to like translate music into words. you don't need to translate words into music. you know you, you just sort of put them into in into resonance with one another. and so 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 that that's sort of an attack on. Like philosophy, like Hegelian philosophy wants philosophy to be supreme and, you know, a lot of music wants music to be supreme. And it's Trinitarian, you know, it's because those three forms of cultural creation map on to the three persons of the Holy Trinity, um, which also map on to will, intellect and imagination. Um, so, you know, the, the, the world soul has, you know, ha- has the ability to have concepts and images and feelings like God has those three dimensions. And so in, in my work, which, you know, liturgy is, you know, it's kind of the main thing, but it's also just a part of, I am interested in synthesizing those as much as possible as almost a politics, because I think that the more th- those three faculties are in sync in a coordinated way, the less susceptible you are to ideology. Um, Cause there, there's a kind of inherent freedom that comes from really firing on all those cylinders at once.
0: That was Ravenna Hunt-Hendricks talking to The Fader's Raphael Helfand. Liturgy's new album, 93696, drops this Friday, March 24, by a Thrill Jockey. The Fader interview is engineered by Tony Giambroni. The executive producer is Alex Robert Ross, and the associate producer is Raphael Helfand. We'd like to thank Lauten Audio for providing our microphones. You can find them online at lautenaudio.com And we'd like to thank James Ivey for providing our intro music. If you enjoyed today's episode, we'd appreciate if you left a 5-star rating review. And don't forget to keep an eye on thefader.com for essential music news, interviews, and essays. We'll be back next week with another episode of The Fader Interview. Goodbye until then.